This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an influential and inimitable life. The self-sabotage report has gotten a lot of kudos and appreciation, and so I'm leaving it up for one more week. If you would like to find out how to stop initial stage self-sabotage, when you just start that new habit or behavior or routine, and then it kind of peters out and like a month later, like where the heck did it go? This is a report that will be very useful for you. You can get it at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. At which point you will also be signed up to receive my weekly-ish newsletter on behavior change, the big change bulldog. And of course, if you don't like it, you can unsubscribe at any point. No hard feelings. Okay, second thing is I am so excited to announce that I have topped off at $301 a month on Patreon. That means you, the, uh, the listeners and supporters of Plant Yourself, are now supporting me to the tune of over $300 a month so that I don't have to bear the entire cost of the podcast all by myself. Now, one, one of the uh, new patrons uh, is also a patron of Colleen Patrick Goudreau, uh, who is a, a very well-known and well-respected and extremely generous and kind and warm and brilliant teacher in the plant-based movement. And I happen to notice that she gets over 3000 bucks a month. So all of a sudden, my own sights were raised like, like, could I make a living from this podcast? And what are all the things that I could be doing if I could devote, you know, a full working life to this rather than evenings, weekends, around the edges, bumming um, transcriptions from friends and, uh, and subscribers, and really turn this into a, a powerhouse broadcast that can change the world. So that's what's on my mind. So if you haven't yet become a patron... Uh, a little bit of a bribe for you. Everyone who becomes a patron of Plant Yourself, which is to say go to Patreon and make a monthly pledge, and it can be as little as $1 a month. That's the minimum, so 12 bucks a year. $1 a month, you get access to all of the healthy habit huddles that I've ever done and all the healthy habit huddles that I'm ever going to do as long as you stay a patron. And these are three pretty much hour-long sessions a month in which I teach about healthy habits, and I include a mind map and exercises, and a lot of people find that very, very helpful, especially folks who can't afford one of the, the high-end programs or personal one-on-one coaching with me. Okay, and on to today's show. My guest is Dr. Michelle McMacken. Dr. McMacken is one of the leaders in the field of kind of getting the plant-based message into the medical profession, into the healthcare system. And she does it on, on several different levels. She does it by uh, working with patients and not just, you know, the, uh, the affluent suburban Whole Foods crowd, but with the patient population at Bellevue Medical Center in New York City, um, including people who are homeless, who live in shelters, who live on the streets. So getting folks in those circumstances, to adopt a plant-based diet to control their diabetes, for example, is no mean feat. And she's um, learned and developed a lot of great counseling techniques that all of us can use for, on ourselves, on our loved ones. And if you are a healthcare professional, um, use those in, in your practice as well. She's also uh, become a leader in 
the field of medical education. She's responsible for the uh, training program for the doctors at Bellevue Medical Center, the young doctors coming up. And you can imagine the power and joy that comes from presenting this entirely different paradigm, this paradigm of lifestyle as opposed to pills and procedures to help new doctors not just treat disease and manage it over time, but prevent and reverse it. And Dr. McMacken has a great backstory, a long and winding path to where she is now. And as you'll see, the elements all come together in the overarching concept of storytelling, of narrative. And that's where Dr. McMacken really shines in taking all these facts and data and turning them into meaningful narratives for us and for each of her patients. So without further ado, Dr. Michelle McMacken, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's great to be talking with you. So we wanted to talk about um, two, two things that you're, you're known for and have spent a lot of time thinking about, which is how to talk to patients about adopting healthier lifestyles and how to talk to doctors and other medical professions to, professionals to teach them about it. But let's, let's start with, with your story because you, uh, you're a, uh, a doctor, board certified, I guess, in, internal medicine specialist. Yes. Um, and you do a whole bunch of other things, including medically supervised weight loss. But you have a, an unusual path to the MD degree. Can you just start by telling us about that? Sure. So I am a lover of books and literature, and I found myself in college really being drawn to study English, even though I come from my, my both of my parents are scientists, and there was a lot of science in my home growing up. I, I just really loved the, the English literature angle, and that's what I studied in, in undergrad. And I think I took a couple of science classes in college to meet requirements, but essentially didn't really do much in that area. And when I finished college with my English degree, I was so excited to get out into the world and get a job. And I realized, well, what, what am I going to, what am I actually going to do <laughs> um, uh-huh. with this, with this education that I have? And uh, I ended up almost randomly uh, getting a job at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention down in Atlanta. And that job was as a writer-editor, so my job was to edit manuscripts and look over health education materials from an angle of editing and writing. And within just a few months of working there, I really fell in love with the content. I was working in the tuberculosis division there and really just became excited about the work that my epidemiology colleagues were doing and the physicians and other public health specialists there were doing going out on outbreaks. And it started this little sort of uh, twinkle in the back of my mind. You know, I started thinking, well, is this something that I might want to do? And I started mulling it over. And over the three and a half years that I worked there, I came to the realization that it was something that I thought I might really like. So I ended up deciding to uh, approach it from a uh, and getting a medical degree angle, and I ended up, you know, deciding to quit my job and sell my car and 
moved back in with my parents for a year just to take a post program because I, I really had never taken science classes. And I t- obviously to enroll in medical school, I had to do some basic requirements. So I found myself in my mid-20s living at home for a year and taking basic biology and physics and organic chemistry and chemistry. And then Another surprise happened, which was that I loved science and I loved studying it and I got so excited about it and I thought, well, this is, this is, you know, this is not expected at all. Uh, but kind of got through that and then ended up working um, for the year that I was applying to medical school, working at the New York City Department of Health as a health educator and applied to medical schools and got into Columbia and enrolled as a quote-unquote older student in my late 20s. And sort of with history from there, I, I found myself in medical school pretty early on realizing that even though I had gotten there because I wanted to do public health, uh, really falling in love with the one-on-one interaction with patients and the communication piece and what it brought to me personally to be able to uh, to have the privilege of taking care of people and working through uh, their health and helping them make decisions. Uh, that's what I ended up really falling in love with. So after after medical school, I decided to train in internal medicine, which is a field that focuses on adult medicine, but it really integrates all the different organ systems and including mental health and sort of everything that it, it takes to be a primary care doctor and look at the whole person and that kind of led me to uh, my current career path. Wow, it's it's so interesting how sort of every every you know piece of candy you opened was delicious. <laughs> I love that analogy. <laughs> and, and then and, and led you to the next one. What what was it about epidemiology or the clinical work you were doing with with TB and with other things at, at the CDC that that got you excited? I think it was really just the the um the you know the the analytics of looking at what causes disease outbreaks and the the fact that you're always being uh you're always resisting making assumptions and you're you're kind of you know in the field of epidemiology it's easy to say oh you know I think that this is this is the reality but then when you start getting more data you have to keep taking steps back and and seeing how it all fits into a framework. And uh, that, that really appealed to me. Mm. Yeah, so uh, it must have been, was it, did it feel very different from, you know, your, your literature stuff? Or were there a lot of sort of the, um, you know, way, ways of interpreting and, uh, and reading literature that, that felt useful, like you had your background in the humanities was actually giving you tools to apply here? That's a great question. I think when I was in the thick of all of my training, I was, it was a little bit hard for me to see the bigger picture on how my humanities background directly informed my, my understanding of public health or epidemiology or of clinical medicine. But now that I'm out and um, a little less sleep deprived and, <laughs> and, and, you know, really sort of flourishing in my, in my practice with patients, I can see that my, my interest in the story and the narrative is, it, it's really, I've kind of come full circle in terms of my interest in hearing people talk about their stories and where they come from and understanding themes that run through their lives, if, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. So that, that's, um, I mean, so, you know, there's, there's like forms of therapy called like story therapy, right? That that's are, right. W when you start to understand the patient's story of themselves, you then can see the places where intervention is possible, right? right? Where you can kind of change the arc a little bit. That's right. Um, yeah, and also I, I had a similar experience. You know, I'm a, I'm a humanities guy, and I did, I did go to um, you know, Temple University for, for uh, health studies and public health, and I kind of struggled with a lot of the data stuff. Not, not that it was hard, but it, would, it just it felt so dry and... It mm -hmm. was only when I when I could make stories of it when I could there was so, something happened when I would look at a spreadsheet or I would look at a um, a table in a study and all of a sudden the, like the numbers would shift and it would it would turn into like here's the story of this study whether it was you know window bars in New York or uh, or ca you know ca cases of uh, of diabetes it, it, it started resolving into human beings into 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 the real world that's right, that's right. and i think it it i mean it, it's the same thing when you uh when i give sort of a talk for example on nutrition you can you can share tons of data um but in, until you pair it with a narrative of a patient success story or a patient's experience uh, it doesn't feel as real to people uh, you know, the data are, are important and you need those too, but these two things sort of complement each other. And I think um, that's a really powerful way of presenting information to people. Mm. And it's one of the weaknesses, I think, of, of our plant-based, evidence-based movement is that the other side has better stories, even though we have better <laughs> data. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> we, we definitely have some great stories, but... Um, we and I think when when we share them, they're 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 incredibly powerful. But uh, yeah, but no. you know, the clickbait too is the uh, is the other aspect of this. Right. That all all of a sudden, whatever we want to hear has 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 something some sort of fake scientific validity backing it up. Right. Exactly. Okay. So so you started working um, one on one, and you fell in love with that dynamic. And I think I, I, I read in a piece you wrote for the Plantrition Project that you had already been a vegetarian for for many years, but you were you were practicing um, very sort of traditional, standard sort of you know pills and and procedures medicine. First of all, what what led you to vegetarianism, and when sort of when was that? Sure. So I, I became a vegetarian, or I should say, um, technically, I guess, a pescatarian very early on in my when I was around 13, because of just I was really turned off, I think, by uh, chicken in particular and, and red meat. It just didn't appeal to me. Um, so it just sort of felt like a, a, a natural thing to do to not eat those foods. It just wasn't appealing. And as I over the years, I, I realized that, um, you know, par part of my part of why it wasn't appealing to me was understanding what had to happen to an animal for it to become food for me. And once I made that connection, I realized, well, it's not, it's not completely consistent for me to eat fish. So I let go of fish as well in my, in my early twenties. And then I went a long time as a, I guess what you'd call a lacto ovo vegetarian until, um, actually 10 years ago this summer when I then became 
aware of, or I actually let myself sort of hear uh, information about what happens to animals, uh, you know, to cows and chickens and egg laying hens and so forth. And once I sort of took that in, I think for me, it was very hard to turn back in terms of where my values were, you know, where my values are aligned. And, and I didn't want to support those industries once I learned what, what it entailed. So I made a decision to go completely vegan. And at that time, this is around, well, this is 2007. And at that time, obviously, social media and even the internet isn't what it is today. And I don't think I, uh, a lot of the key books that we all, and, and, and information that we all rely on now around the health benefits of plant-based diets had not been published or were not very uh, mainstream. So I don't think I fully appreciated from the health perspective, you know, ironically, as a physician, that this could be an astoundingly healthy way of eating. And hmm. that coupled with the fact that I'm, I'm very well trained in pharmacology. I'm very well trained in how to prescribe medication and refer people for procedures. Those two things together kind of led me to, well, this is a very personal choice. I'm going to keep you know, living according to my values and making choices according to my values in terms of my food. Um, but at work, I'm going to prescribe medications because that's what I know how to do. Gotcha. And so when, when you when you were years. when you were eating vegan, were you s sort of like a whole food plant based, like doing it for your health or just sort of, you know, just eliminating um, the, you know, the animal products, but still having, you know, processed foods and things like that? Yeah, I think back then, and it's certainly at the beginning, I was eating more processed foods and just trying to make my way through the world as a new vegan. And um, there was not, there were not the kind of options, uh, even in terms of availability of, say, plant milks or other things in the grocery stores that there are now. And so I was kind of finding my way through that through that world. Um, and so it wasn't until a few years after that that I really sort of started to read more about the health benefits and start emphasizing more of a whole foods plant-based approach. Mm -hmm. Did you notice any health benefits or performance benefits or uh, subjective feelings of feeling better at each stage, you know, when you, when you gave up fish or when you gave up um, dairy and eggs? I think you know, I've always been, um, to be to be honest, my health has always been very good, and so I never really struggled with major health problems, unfortunately. And I think that for me, it was more a just a it, it felt really good to know that I had made a decision on the basis of my values and and was not contributing to something that I didn't agree with. Uh, rather than necessarily huge, astounding health benefits right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I will say that transitioning more to a whole foods plant-based approach certainly uh, certainly has come with some attendant health benefits in terms of just energy level and just just feeling better overall, um, to, you know, to be, to be vague. But um, for someone who started out yeah. fairly healthy to begin with, um, I definitely notice I feel better when I eat that way. Gotcha. So wh where were you in your career? What were you doing when the whole food plant-based protocol started leaking into your practice? <laughs> yeah, I was about 10 years into my practice and I had this very, very 
life-changing experience where I went to a medical conference called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And I went there with a, a colleague of mine who's very like-minded. And at the time, I, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know what the term lifestyle medicine was. <laughs> and I got to the yeah, I got to this conference, and I I heard uh, I heard Dr. Esselstyn speak, and Dr. Ornish speak, and Dr. Barnard speak, and other others who really, you know, you, it's hard to hear um, people like that talk about their experience and their data without it having a huge impact on you. And I remember being at that conference, and literally at the end of the conference day, coming back to my hotel room and feeling like I, I, I couldn't even sleep. I was so sort of hyped up about this new information and what I was learning and realizing that all of this time in my practice, I had been missing a huge opportunity to help my patients get to the root cause of their chronic conditions. The huh. things that I spend day, you know, day in and day out, I'm treating, I'm treating diabetes, I'm treating pre-diabetes, I'm treating high cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease, people afraid of getting cancer because it runs in their family, and the list goes on and on and on. And I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on pharmacotherapy, and I'm focusing on screening tests, but I'm not focusing on lifestyle. And that was a really humbling realization. Hmm. What made you go to the conference in the first place? What did you think it was going to be about? I can only think that I had some subconscious, um, maybe the same way I made a decision to, you know, instinct and made a decision to drop everything I was doing and, and go to med school at an older age than other people or <laughs> take these sort of turns in my life. I, I can't think of what exactly it was. I just remember having this, you know, I had a little bit of extra money in my budget to, to, for continuing medical education and something made me Google lifestyle lifestyle and i and i and it came up almost like it was somebody whispering in my ear so um i'm just glad i did it mhm mm and was was do you think part of the gap in your understanding of lifestyle was around the, the, the mantra in, in mainstream medicine that we can't get people to change their lifestyles. They just won't do it. So the best we can do is, is hope for their compliance with a pill or impose our will upon them with a procedure when they're going to be sedated and they won't be able to get out of it. Were you looking for like proof that lifestyle could make a big difference or, or just ways in which you could get them to improve a little bit? I think that I think that the real you know, for me my from my vantage point the issue is that nothing is in in my medical training was framed as lifestyle works and there was just the paradigm is just it's just that paradigm doesn't exist at all so you don't you don't think that uh, you don't really understand the power that that the changes in lifestyle are going to have and then beyond that of course you're not taught specifically. You know, what are the lifestyle changes that people can do? And then you're not taught how do you counsel patients on those? What is the evidence base for it? And how do you actually reach people and help them change behavior? I mean, we're taught, you're taught a little bit about uh, motivational interviewing or about behavior change um, in the context of things like, you know, quitting smoking uh, or, you know, other, other unhealthy behaviors, but you're not taught about nutrition in, in, a, in a meaningful way. 
um, and you're not taught about sleep or stress management, uh, things that are extremely relevant. So for me, I, I just don't think I had any sense that this was a thing that worked at all. It just wasn't really on my radar. Uh, I will say that part of my, part of my work, in addition to being a primary care physician and, and do, practicing internal medicine, was I also, uh, as you mentioned, uh, have been directing a medical weight management program. And that program has, for a very long time, focused on lifestyle changes. But up until I had this epiphany, my focus was on traditional lifestyle management of, of excess body weight, which is count your, count your calories, measure your portions, things that, are, things that I, I now sort of look at and think that's, that doesn't really work with my philosophy, and I don't find that to be very useful. Mm-hmm. So, so you came back from the conference and you were, you know, so excited you couldn't sleep. How, I know a lot of, um, of doctors who've, you know, seen forks over knives or, you know, somehow been exposed to this and changed their own lifestyles and improved their own health. And, th- and yet they have no clue how to change their practice, how to, mm-hmm. you know, f- reach patients differently, how to make money at it. So they end up doing it, you know, Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings for free. Like, what did you do when you came back and all of a sudden you had this, this new mandate from these, these giants of lifestyle medicine that you hadn't known existed to start bringing this into your own work? Yeah, I really fumbled a lot at the beginning. I, I do remember very specifically that, that, Monday morning after the conference, seeing one of the patients on my schedule is a woman who is from uh, West Africa. And I remember talking to her. She'd been my patient for about a year at that point. And I remember talking to her for the very first time ever about her diet. The first time ever. And she Mm. has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and she had recently had another cardiac stent placed for coronary artery disease. And I had never talked about her diet. And so I knew that I had to start somewhere and I knew that I didn't have a lot of the training, but I was really committed to just giving it a try. And so I just started fumbling my way through it. And I really, because I work in a, in a hospital that's where the patient population is extraordinarily diverse and I'm frequently using interpreter phones, um, speaking Spanish, which I, which I do speak, but many, many other languages and speaking across culture and different socioeconomics uh, uh, statuses, I, I really had to get creative. And so I kind of fumbled my way through, but, but pretty quickly I started seeing, even with my very crude, <laughs> untrained approach, seeing a lot of benefits. I mean, for one thing, my patients almost universally really liked talking about it. And it brought us closer in a way that I, you know, patients that I'd known for a long time, I learned more about them from talking about what they ate than I had from, you know, obviously from prescribing medications or just a a very superficial understanding of their, their home life. So that was the first thing is it really helped my relationship with people. And I think the the second thing was that just quickly people just with very little, very minimal, simple advice, people took it to heart and started making their own changes. And then within a few months, I started, we both started reaping the benefits of their having made those changes. So I started to see people 
whose blood sugar got a lot better with these simple dietary changes and for whom I could actually start discontinuing or lowering doses of medications in just a very short time. So that gave me more impetus to keep going. And it, it really, it, it was very rewarding very, very quickly. Uh, so how did you do it? I mean, that's, that's like supposedly the hardest nut to crack to talk to your patients about lifestyle because they'll nod and say, yes, yes, yes. And then they'll go home and they'll eat the same foods they always ate and hang out with the same people they always hung out with. And they will, you know, talk to themselves and explain that, well, you know, they can always take the pill. Like what, what, what did you do in your untrained crude way that was having an actual impact? Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, the first step is for me is usually assessing a person's interest in talking about it. And I, that's, that doesn't, you know, that's a basic principle of motivational interviewing where you kind of get permission to talk to someone about something that they may or may not have an interest in. But that first step is really powerful because I think prior to that, I had just assumed that most people weren't going to change and, and, or just weren't interested at all. So just even asking that question at the beginning of a visit and saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, you're taking these 12 medications and you have these conditions, would, you, would it be okay if we talk for a few minutes about how you can get a little healthier by making some changes to the way you eat or other aspects of lifestyle? And I would say that about 75% of my patients are interested in hearing more. And so for the for the yeah so for those who are then we kind of go to the next step that's that's so interesting because it's it's such a simple thing to start with and in in my experience with clinicians it's rare that i hear it from them sort of being you know hyper respectful and saying you know may i have your permission to discuss these things with you it's it's tip, it's typically sort of more you know rushed and here's what you got to do did you, had you studied yeah. motivational interviewing at that point, or was it just sort of come naturally to you? Yeah, I well, I I had definitely studied motivational interviewing as part of my work with the with the weight management program, and again because because the the communication and connection part of being a physician is what's what I find so rewarding. I think I naturally really enjoy that dynamic, but. The word permission is interesting because even though I'm framing it as I'm asking permission, it's really just a it's really just an introduction. It's really just by a way of saying, hey, it's a teaser. You know, there it's a way of saying, hey, there are things you can do to improve your health that don't involve a pill or a procedure. Do you want to hear more? And when you when you frame it that way, a lot of people admit that they do and and are amazed because no physician has ever mentioned it to them before. It almost, I mean, I'm coming back to your background in, in literature. It almost, it's almost like a little bit of a cliffhanger, right? The last, the last, li- <laughs> the last line of the, of the chapter, like, do you know, do you want to know more? Like, like all you have to do <laughs> to, to get someone's interest to say, Hey, I want to tell you something. Oh, never mind. <laughs> right? Oh, wait till the next visit. <laughs> yeah. Appointment. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing your, uh, your your literary chops, you know, kind of coming coming to the fore here. <laughs> That's funny. 
Yeah, I mean, for so for most people, most people do want to hear more. And of course, I have my eye on the clock. I mean, I have a regular busy practice, and it's not it's not a it's not a practice where I have uh, the ability to spend the amount of time that I want to spend with every patient. It, it I am subject to many of the same time constraints that the regu- most all, most primary care doctors are. But um, for the for for those that want to hear more, then I then I take it to the next step, and we space it out over multiple visits usually. But with the first visit, sort of laying a broad framework of foods that support health and foods that detract from health. Mm-hmm. For those for the patients who don't who who tell me, hey, you know, no, I really don't want to hear about changes in food or changes in my lifestyle then for me that's they've not given me permission or they've not wanted to read past the cliffhanger and i tell them that's okay well but but i'm actually going to bring it up again at the next appointment and i keep bringing it up because you never know when they might be ready to talk about it mhm so you mentioned so you you're working with a diverse patient population and and that's at, at Bellevue yes okay so who who are some of the 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 patient case studies that we, the listeners, might be surprised to hear about. Maybe a couple, you know, we're back to stories, like a couple of stories of of people who made big changes that you might have thought, oh, they're not going to do it. Yeah, I have have many, and and they're really fun to talk about. I would say one is, one of my most, my most favorite stories is a gentleman who uh, he's in his mid 40s and he's originally from Mexico and he came to me uh, about eight years ago as a patient with really poorly very poorly controlled type 2 diabetes and very very sort of uh, uninterested in taking medications but I at that time was really not equipped or you know, motivated, I guess, or in in the know to talk to him about lifestyle changes. So he went on for a very long time with very high blood sugars. And about about a year ago, we sat down and I said, hey, you know, you're at a point now where, you know, your blood sugar is so high that you were, were sort of at a fork in the road where we can either talk about a dramatic lifestyle change to sort of to try to get things under better control, or you can start taking insulin. Uh, but one way or the other, I don't think it's a good idea to stay in the state that you're in. And even though I had brought it up a few times over the past few years, this was the time that he was ready to do it and ready to hear about it. And so I seized on that opportunity. And one of the things I, I, I'm really passionate about is type 2 diabetes and prediabetes, because I would say that aside from cholesterol lowering, that's an area where I see dramatic improvements by switching switching one's diet. And so for him and for most of my patients with any kind of insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, I talk through, I like to talk through first, what do you think are the foods that contribute to your having diabetes? And most patients will right off the bat tell me sugar or bread or rice. And I love doing that because I love to understand where people are starting from and normalize why they think that. And I tell them, I used to think that too. And there's some truth to that in, in, certain, in certain situations, but you're forgetting about a whole category of foods that's also contributing to your diabetes. And so we talk about 
um, where the evidence lies and processed meats and red meats and how those contribute to insulin resistance. And with this patient and with all patients, uh, I usually draw you know, for diabetes, I draw a picture of what's really going on at the level of the cell. And this sounds a little crazy, I know, but it really, really works. Because until you understand that the problem is not blood sugar, that blood sugar is only a symptom, until you understand that eating a banana uh, and your sugar going up, the banana it's not the banana's fault. <laughs> it's really, hmm. I call the banana the innocent victim. Until you understand that, you're not going to understand what I'm explaining to you about how to change your diet. And so mm. I do it all the time. It's, it's very, I have found it to be very effective, even among my patients who have an elementary school education. It, they get it. And I talk through the foods that are evidence-based for increasing insulin resistance, namely processed meats, red meats, to some degree, all animal protein, and certainly sugar-sweetened beverages. And then I talk about the foods that actually help your body heal and reduce your, you know, help your insulin function better. And those are the whole grains, the fruits, the vegetables, and the beans. And, and we kind of take it from there. And of course, woven into all of this is I take a dietary history. I usually do a quick uh, 24-hour recall um, because even though that's not, of course, it's not 100% accurate of what a person always eats, it at least gives me a snapshot and it's efficient. And then I talk through what are the foods that you like that are in these categories of healthy foods. Where, where, should we, where can we start from in terms of the foods that you already like that are foods that do promote health? So that I'm not introducing strange, quote unquote, strange foods that a person's not accustomed to that, you know, they don't know how to prepare. Um, I start with where, you know, where, what the person already knows and likes and what's reasonable to add to their life. And we just keep building from there. Mm. So you're so, not asking them to to make um, giant all at once changes. Well, it really depends on the person. I, I would say the, the vast majority of people are making are making uh, stepwise changes. But this particular patient that I'm bringing up, uh, he he knew that he was at a at a really crucial point, and and his sugar was so high, and he for whatever reason was just really really motivated at that point. And so I for him I said you know, I can see that you really want to try this. Why don't you try a whole food plant-based diet for three weeks? And let's see what it does to your blood sugar and how you feel and other parameters. And he wanted to give it a try. So if a person's ready to do that, great. I, I give them the tools and I talk about how to do that. And we, we create sort of a, a menu that can work for them for the next three weeks or so. Um, I use a variety of resources and then we follow up. In his case, he went all out and he went completely whole food plant-based and within four months, he had almost completely reversed his diabetes. Hmm. It was, and, it was, it and he was enjoyed astounding. the food? He, he's still Did doing it. He still loves the food. He's super happy. Wow. So, so he, he was from Mexico. Yes. Um, so... He would have had a, um, you know, a fondness for certain traditional field, uh, foods, you know, like, you know, taco, maybe chili, um, lots of cheese on stuff. How, how did he navigate, or if you know, how, how did you help him navigate, you know, so going from a tra his traditional diet maybe to one that could be seen as sort of, you know, northeastern elitist hippie 
quinoa and kale. <laughs> yeah, I I have not. I have found it uh, surprisingly uh, surprisingly easy to talk to people about simple foods that are culturally relevant to them that are based in plants. And maybe that's one of the advantages of taking care of a patient population um, that's for whom, you know, who've either immigrated to the United States fairly recently or who are still eating traditional diets. Um, They, you know, while no one has come from a fully plant-based diet, traditionally, the, the plant foods in their in their traditional diet are prominent. And so it's just a matter of um, giving those foods the sort of the microphone and magnifying those foods in the diet and really crowding out the more unhealthy ones. And that's really what he did. And there's, you know, foods that he, there's a lot of misunderstandings around, particularly when it comes to diabetes, around foods that one quote unquote can and can't eat. And so a lot of my patients are delighted when I tell them, if you like sweet potato, fantastic, eat sweet potatoes. They have been denying themselves fruits. They have been denying themselves foods like corn that they have been told they shouldn't eat because they have diabetes or they're at risk for diabetes. So it's it's actually a message that is very, in my experience, very well received and people are, are excited about. Hmm. So, so one difficulty is helping people to get started. And it sounds like you have a sort of a protocol for, for easing them in at, at, at whatever level to identify those foods they already like and build on them stepwise. Do you uh, help patients with the issue of, of cravings or of willpower that they say, okay, yeah, doc, I want to do it. And then they come back and they're shamefaced and they admitted that they admit that they haven't been doing it at all because of, you know, hot dogs at the stadium or dinner at uh, auntie's house or, you know, the pretzel wagon, whatever, whatever it is like that. They, they want to do it, but they behaviorally don't seem to know how to make the habit change stick. Yeah, sure. There's definitely that. And and my approach, there are people for whom a eating, eating some of these foods that tend to trigger addictive, um, you know, where people sort of can't, they have these cravings and they can't get off the cycle. There are people for whom they're capable of doing that every once in a while and still doing generally okay. And there are other people for whom it works much better to just eliminate those foods completely from the diet. And uh, people need a lot of help too with just the basic strategizing around how do I how do I get away from those foods? They're so they're such a key part of my life, and um, I use the I use the I, the concept that you know there are certain foods where if I had them in my house, I know I would be tempted to eat them, and so my strategy is not to always rely on willpower because there's the, that decays <laughs> throughout the day and throughout time, but to change your environment, and so helping people negotiate ways to change their environment is a big part of it and working with family members. And you can imagine there's all kinds of scenarios that make it hard for people to, to change their environment. Uh, so that's what I, that's what I try to do. And I'm, it's not perfect. I'm still, I have a lot to learn and, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of really tough situations, but in general, I've been, I've been really pleased with how much people have, how much movement people have had along the spectrum of, of moving towards a healthier diet. Hmm. Now, so you, you work in a lot of, uh, it looks like collaborative 
settings, how, how do your colleagues feel about you and this lifestyle stuff and this plant stuff? Do you get uh, pushback or are they curious? Yeah, I'm fortunate, I think, because uh, my colleagues have been have been very receptive. I part of it may just be that I I started this relatively you know late in my time of of working this in in this institution, and so I already had networks and friendships, and it's not like I came cold with this new idea and was meeting everyone for the first time, and so I already had um, trust built up, but. Early on, after I started seeing all these changes in my patients, even through my through my my very rudimentary counseling, I realized I needed more training myself. And so, along with a colleague, I applied for and got a grant to study evidence based nutrition and develop a curriculum for my colleagues. And that was a two year grant in which I pretty much delved into the nutrition literature and science and sort of started to catch up everything I had missed throughout my training. And that experience, developing a curriculum to teach my faculty, we started with our faculty colleagues, so the, the folks that are teaching doctors in training and medical students, that, that actually was very well received when you, when you show people the science behind, you know, all the evidence that's there. I have to say, and you, as I said before, when you pair that with specific examples of vignettes of patients who've who've gotten healthier, it, it, I think people it really resonated with people, and they were excited about it, and they they appropriately brought up concerns about how am I going to do this in the time that I have, and that's something that we're all still trying to figure out. But as far as conceptually, they all were pretty much on board. In fact, some of them, after hearing the nutrition curriculum, actually decided to move towards um, more of a plant-based diet themselves, which was really cool to see. So it's been, huh. it's been well-received. So um, it's, it seems like we travel in different circles because I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I worked on Proteinaholic with Dr. Garth and yeah. Dr. Garth Davis, and he is always getting into fights with people in the medical <laughs> community, in the medical weight loss community, in the bariatric community, endocrinology, people who are promoting, you know, from their own perspective, a science-based, evidence-based view of the low-carb lifestyle. And it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of everywhere that, that he turns, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of it, too. You know, what's, what's your take? Like, are, are people, you know, your, your colleagues, are they, you know, just smarter or, Extra is, awesome. you know, is, is there, <laughs> it, yeah, is there anything like for, for ordinary people? Like we, you know, we, we like, you know, Colin Campbell, Neil Barnard, Garth Davis, like we like them better, but honestly, like <laughs> most of us don't know if they're right, you know, in our, cause we're not scientists, like so it's always good to hear from someone who doesn't have, you know, a plant-based background being convinced by this. Do, do, you, do you have to kind of discuss the so-called evidence for the, the benefits of low-carb versus plant-based with your colleagues? Um, I've, I've definitely come against, up against that. And when I, when I speak, when I've spoken outside of the group, the media group where I work, I've felt more of that uh, and I, and it certainly is frustrating, but I, I think in the bigger picture for me, the first thing I'm, the, my, my, my first message, my, my, 
overarching message is always, I'm so glad that we're talking about food at all and that we're talking about lifestyle at all as physicians. And that's a unifying point. And then my second point is, well, let's, we can, we can debate the nuances of, you know, little nuances where the evidence isn't clear, but it is, it is very hard to refute uh, the data, when you look at the whole, the sort of the landscape of where the of where nutrition science lies, it is very hard to refute that diets based in whole plant foods are are healthful. It's hard to refute that. And when you look into at each individual part of plant based diets, so whole grains, fruits, vegetables, uh, legumes, and nuts and seeds, you can. It, you know, the, the evidence is overwhelming that those for each of those individual food groups. And then when you put them together, the evidence is very strong as well. And uh, and yet where we spend as Americans, where we spend most of our time eating is in food categories for which there's actually evidence of harm. Uh, processed meats, added sugars, refined grains, um, or there's evidence of neutrality or harm. So chicken, poultry, uh, dairy, eggs, and so forth. And so I, I just try to, I just try to unify people around, you know, let's, let's focus on how we can get people to eat more of the foods that we know promote health. Uh, and let's talk in terms of foods instead of nutrients, because people don't, it's when you say carb, that could be a food that's very healthful or a food that's not healthful. Um, so let's talk in terms of specific foods and let's unify around the fact that we, we should be getting more people to eat these healthful foods and stop arguing about, uh, macronutrient ratios and, and, and things that are, um, that are not going to be productive in terms of how we counsel our patients. Mm. So in, in your work with, with doctors, teaching them the nutrition curriculum, do you, do you get a lot of resistance just based on the fact that they are eating a certain way. Like when you went to the ACLM conference, you were already a vegan, so you didn't necessarily have any um, cognitive dissonance, right? Or you know, uh, uh, you know, a bias against this. Like I'm feeling this right now. I'm reading this book called Grit by Angela Duckworth, and mm -hmm. I took the little quiz at the beginning, and I t it turns out I'm not very gritty, and so I'm really resisting <laughs> her whole argument. And I'm, I'm like listening to it as I run and arguing with it, and I can just feel like it's because. You know, <laughs> I'm no better than anybody else. I don't. I don't want yeah. this to be true because it's it's challenging my uh, yeah. my, my beliefs about myself. Like, do you find that that um, it's harder for doctors to hear when they themselves may be eating a pretty crappy diet? I definitely think. Well, we do. Have, first of all, we 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 have strong evidence that uh, physicians who practice um, healthier lifestyles are more likely to counsel on healthier lifestyles. Right now. When I give a talk on nutrition to doctors or medical students, I usually start by acknowledging that potential discomfort right off the bat. And somewhere in the beginning of my talk, I mention that, you know, at, at some point in the next hour, you may start to feel uncomfortable. And that's because you might be sitting here eating, you know, you might be eating a, a white bagel with cream cheese as you're hearing me talk about how certain foods, you know, refined grains might be harmful. And, and so I, I say, listen, this is, we're all, we're all on some kind of a journey and I am certainly not a perfect eater. 
And it's okay to feel that discomfort. What I'm going to ask you to do for the next hour is sort of make it a a productive discomfort, which is a term I heard once from somebody I thought was great. You know, take that discomfort and harness it into some kind of productivity. Even if you yourself realize that you're not going to, you're not maybe ready to change or you like those foods, at least acknowledge the bias that you have and just try to keep, try to look at the science that I'm going to present to you with an open mind. And when you, again, when you couple that with examples of, of how patients can, how, how their lives can literally be transformed in certain cases, I, I think it's a message that has, has a, it appeals to people. Um, there, are you going to, you know, do I have people who walk out from a lecture and say, you know, I, I don't believe it, I don't buy it? Of course. But the vast majority of people have been pretty eager to hear about it. And uh, particularly when you frame it in terms of my, your direct experience with, with patients. It's kind of, it feels like it's kind of hard to argue with you. You're, you're doing a little sort of, you know, Tai Chi or jujitsu. You're not, <laughs> you're not interested in sort of push, pushing back. It's, <laughs> you know, is, 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 is that sort of your, your, your nature or was that something that you've, you've cultivated? Because you're, you're much less, uh, you know, and I, I've read your writings on the forks over knives and plantrition. And your your writing is sort of uniformly positive and inviting and kind of, gee whiz, this is so cool. And it, it tends not to be confrontational. I'm guessing you just, you don't, you know, raise people's hackles the way a lot of us do. <laughs> I'm yeah. wondering, is that is that a strategy or does it come naturally or both? Yeah, no, I think I can get into a pretty mean argument if I want to. And, uh, you know, I... <laughs> I <laughs> But, you know, in terms of how I present this information, I feel it, it's not an understatement to say that this, the experience of, of helping my patients get to the root cause of their disease and changing, making these changes in their diet and lifestyle, it is not an understatement to say that that has literally changed my life. It's, it, you know, of course, it's changed my patients' lives, but from the most selfish perspective, I feel so I feel so optimistic about it and perhaps that perhaps that radiates uh I don't know if you if I if someone wants to meet me out back in an alley and and argue about <laughs> a keto ketogenic diet I am more than happy to do so uh and and it'll be fun and it'll be academic and it'll be interesting but when it comes to the the nutrition science I think I think it's important to recognize that the, it all kind of converges around the same basic concepts. And I don't, I don't want to get into an argument of, with someone about whether they can include 10, you know, whether they can include a little bit of dairy or a little bit of egg in their diet. I don't want to get into that argument. Do I think, do I think it's great to, to follow a hundred percent whole food plant-based diet or whole foods vegan diet? Of course, there's so many, so many incredible reasons but I don't want to argue the fine points. I want to argue how do we get people to shift towards a healthier eating pattern? Hmm. Uh, I had a question. It just slipped my mind. So I might, I might, <laughs> I might edit this out or, I'm, or I might leave it in so people know that I'm as <laughs> frazzled as, as the rest of us. Um, huh. Yeah, I mean, I, Darn I, it. I'll, I'll, is it, should I tell some more patient stories or give you a moment? Yeah, why don't you, why don't you ask the question, <laughs> ask, ask the question that I should, that I should have asked had I been paying attention. <laughs> no, 
No, I mean, I, I, I think that little, little bit really goes a long way in my, in my experience and doling out, doling out some of the counseling over time and helping people build on it is, is been very useful. So for example, we, it, for a long time, people, my patients used to ask me, can you just give me a list of foods that I can eat? And I really resisted that. And I thought, oh, that's so, that's ridiculous. That's so concrete. Why would I give you just a list of foods that you can eat? And after about a year, I thought, well, you know what? Fine. I'll make a list of foods that you can eat and it'll be a list of whole plant foods. And I'll, and I'll put it in English and Spanish and I'll put pictures on it. And that has actually turned out to be, it's a two page handout. Uh, front and back, and everyone in our practice has been using it, the, the doctors in training, the medical students, the faculty, it, because it all it is is just a simple list of whole plant foods, and the way people use it is they give it to the patient. If there's, if there's time, they have the patient go through it and sort of check off the foods on, on the list that they already happen to like. And then you can strategize, well, what's a meal that you can make with these foods? Or what's, what are two different meals or a dinner that you, that you can make with these foods? And then you just start building from there. How can you start using these foods to crowd out some of the unhealthier foods in your diet? I've seen the, the doctors in training use it by, they, they give it to the patient while they're going to present the, you know, the situation, the case to their supervisor. And then by the time they get back to the room, the patient has filled out the whole page. And then it's something that they can quickly talk about and bring up at the next visit as well. So it's been, it's actually been very useful. Uh, so, so when someone gets that, um, that checklist, just the list of foods with pictures on it, I assume they, they can go to the supermarket or the local store and find those foods, but then how do they know what to do with them? Right. So f for people who already have who already like to cook or have, or for whom, you know, they're making most meals at home. Usually it's a matter of sub making substitutions and getting them to sort of think about ways that they can substitute, say legumes instead of chicken, uh, or using avocado instead of cheese or something like that. And for people who don't like to cook, and I obviously I take care of people who live in housing situations where they sometimes don't even have a kitchen or they're living in a shelter and they're relying on getting food from the street. That's a obviously a very different situation and, and potentially infinitely more challenging. But even there, there's little workarounds. Is a person going to be able to adopt a completely whole foods, plant-based diet by eating on the street? Probably not. But are they going to be able to make shifts? Yes. And I've seen them do that as well. Uh, Sometimes I always I always joke that sometimes the the root on, on nutrition counseling is when you when you have people just increase the fruit in their diet and and fill up on that it can actually it can actually crowd out a lot of the snack foods that people eat and fill them up so that they get to the next meal in a state where they can actually make a healthier choice. So those are just some of the little tricks mm. that I've used. Gotcha. So I, re I remember what I was going to ask you when I blanked, which is I want to pick, pick up on something you, you said in passing, which is you know that there's these foods that Americans eat, these categories with evidence of harm, but there's others you said are evidence of harm or neutrality. You mentioned like chicken and dairy. Right. And I know for, for, for a lot of people in the plant-based community, 
like them's fighting words, right? right. The thought that, that there, the, the scientific evidence against chicken and dairy is not so airtight as to be overwhelming. But you, you, you see it differently? Well, listen, here's what someone's going to say to that, as someone who is not in the whole food plant-based community. They're going to take, they're going to look at a study like the, there was a big study published recently um, through the, uh, I think it was half a million people looking at red and processed meat and a variety of different, uh, mortality from a variety of different diseases. And that study, if you just read the abstract, what you would learn from that is that red and processed meats are bad for you which is no surprise, and that eating poultry it is associated with a 25% reduction in, de- in overall death rate. So a person who's, who's just reading the abstract and just thinking superficially about, uh, about a study like that is going to come away with that thinking, okay, so chicken's good for me, right? That's, that's what an average person would think, I, I would think, when they read that. And so what I try to, ex- right. what I try to explain when I give nutrition talks is that these foods that I call, I call them the, you know, the, the, the yellow box foods. I divide foods into to green, yellow, and red boxes. And so these yellow box foods, which are, which are really the, the poultry, the eggs, the um, poultry, eggs, dairy, and to some degree fish, these foods can, can actually look pretty good if you compare them to really bad foods. <laughs> so, so, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily healthier for you than eating the the whole plant foods. In fact, almost all of us would argue that there's great science showing that they're not. And and then I usually point to studies showing that, you know, there was a big study last year looking at animal versus plant protein and mortality. And across the board, substituting just 3% of your calories for uh, of, for plant protein instead of animal protein carried a mortality benefit even all the way to, to poultry and fish. So people, people need to understand that a lot of these studies are relative. It's the same thing that we get into when we look at saturated fat studies. And, and so is, is chicken, does chicken look neutral or, or, or helpful in certain studies? Maybe if you're comparing it, it to hot dogs, but what if you compare it to beans? I don't think it looks so helpful anymore. And that's kind of how I, how I portray it. Mm-hmm. So where do, where do you see your work and the work of, of other allies in the community going over the next five, ten years? And, and I'm, I'm sort of asking a, a sort of longer arc because I'm thinking about, you know, the fight over uh, smoking cigarettes that took like 70 years to, to really go from initial research to, to public awareness and medical acceptance of the facts to things like uh, trans fats like do you, do you see a tipping point or are the are the food industry um influences still so powerful that we're we're still at the infant's infancy well i see things changing pretty quickly and and it seems like uh every every third day there's a new really cool study coming out about um, something related to plant-based diets, and 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 I see. Of course, I'm coming at it from a from a vantage point of the, those are you know I I see this adding to a framework that overall supports eating a plant-based diet. That that is that is an overall very healthy eating pattern. But I do think that the information is getting out there. I I'm concerned about some of the the rise, the parallel rise in the sort of ketogenic diets, 
paleo, um, you know, this very low carb phenomenon, which is high in either very high in fat and or high in protein, um, typically animal proteins. I I do see that there there's a lot of there's still a lot of confusion out there, and and one can make an argument that some of the confusion is growing. So, you know, you and I have talked about this, I think, over email threads with others, but we're at a point where, you know, it's, I'm not sure what the answer is to how to get, how to get people to understand what, what is, what is actually based in, in science and where the, you can find a study to show that there's a benefit to some random thing, but it's, that's just a blip in the overall landscape of where the nutrition science lies. How do you get people to understand that? So I don't know that I have the answer, but I think that's where we need to move. Uh, and we also need to, it's, it's really imperative that more people in the health community, more physicians especially, are aware not just of how powerful food choices can be, but can, we, dis, we very quickly start to dispel some of these myths around and lack of understanding around, uh, around carbohydrates, for example, and 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 insulin resistance and saturated fat, not causing heart disease and all these things that are, they spread among health professionals just the same way they spread around non-medical folks. Um, because the, because the, probably because there's a lack of training in, in the medical community. Mm. <laughs> so I don't have yeah, I think, uh, a single I, answer, but I, but I have, I've provided some concerns. Right. I think you need to write a book. And I, I think you have to put in all the science, but, all, but also uh, give it like a literary twist so people have to keep turning the page. <laughs> That's a wonderful idea. Wanna, do, if you're, if you're, yeah, do, do you have, go ahead, I'm sorry. Do, do, you, do you have a book in you? Is that something you've been thinking about? Yes, it's definitely something I've been thinking about. Um, it's a little intimidating to think about writing a book, and I'd probably have to cut back on other stuff that I'm doing, but it's, it's on the, it's certainly on the bucket list. Um, yeah. Just, I mean, just start with like, you know, sleep and, and personal time and <laughs> see how that goes. And then, and then, then you can figure out if you need to cut back on your uh, professional responsibilities too. That's sage advice. Thank you. <laughs> well, Michelle McMacken, this has been so much fun talking to you and, and, and hearing your story. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you're out there doing things the way you do with the people you're doing them with and, and really not only spreading the word, but also sort of bringing back to us best practices in, in communication and influence. Thank you so much. Likewise, it's really an honor to, to, to be on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I hope we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. More than anything, those reviews help us reach more listeners and spread the message. And for more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 221. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 220 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and still get the Stop Self-Sabotage Report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. If you would like to support the podcast and you have more time and typing chops than money, considering adopting an episode to transcribe. 
This allows us to spread our advocacy to the deaf and hearing impaired and also to provide a convenient format for everyone to consume the content. And with that, I'm pleased to announce there's two new transcripts available. Last week's Judd Brewer, number 220, is available courtesy of Ashley Corcoran, and you can get that at plantyourself.com slash 220. And also one from the archives, Dustin Rudolph, the plant-based pharmacist, he and I talked about approaches to type 2 diabetes and hypertension, and that was number 150, and that's available in PDF format thanks to Beth Hillman. And you can find that at plantyourself.com slash 150. All right, so here we go. Thanks to all the Plant Yourself podcast patrons, including... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Ben, and Gila Lasser, David Donahue. <gasps> Blair Cyber, Doro Navizov, Grimes with Keep the Cheese Off, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabek, the equally, equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia, oh. Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan, Susan Lafferty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Catherine not Catherine, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, and Kelly Machia for your generous support of the podcast. And thanks also to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more of his beautiful music. And if you'd like to support the show, in addition to transcribing an episode, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. That's free. You can write a review on iTunes, also free. And you can become a patron of the show with a one-time gift or ideally that ongoing contribution over at plantyourself.com. Just click on the right sidebar where it says Patreon. And even for just a dollar a month, you can have access to all the Healthy Habit Huddles and know that you are helping to support this show so that I can make it a sustainable thing now and into the future. Speaking of iTunes reviews, I got a bunch. Um, Stop, drop, and listen says somebody uh, named Love the Process. And they write, inspiring, true, intriguing. I love Plant Yourself podcast and the guest interview. Howard does an incredible job engaging in conversation while asking some great questions. Absolutely relevant. I feel like Howard believes and follows a whole life integrated approach and the diverse people and topics reflect this. New myself to the plant-based idea lifestyle, I found this instrumental in initiating and sustaining my choice to embrace a whole food plant-based way. I have not been perfect. Nevertheless, I so appreciate each episode all the more. Thank you, Howard. I'm excited to re-listen to your material on self-sabotage. I wonder if you might consider building a coaching, a community-style coaching where we can help support you financially and each other during this life-altering shift. Being able to interact even virtually with people of similar goals would be amazing. Ooh, I like that love comma the process. Let me think about it. And Abe1A says, excellent content and guests. Thank you for all you do to get highly qualified experts as guests who impart such excellent advice on how to live better. I've listened to several episodes and have made changes in my life already. Abe1A, that's the secret. I look for people who are going to teach me stuff that I need to learn. So I'm glad that, uh, that you listening in is also uh, helping you. 
And I got two here from Colleen Patrick Goudreau, one of my plant-based vegan heroes. Or possibly it's someone using her name, but still, I feel good. So, Colleen, if you are a listener and you're listening to this, uh, thank you so much. I'd love to have a conversation. I'd love to get you on the podcast as well. Um, so happy this amazing author has continued to feed us freely in his weekly podcast. Always love listening to his thought-provoking vegan heart. Great podcast, great interviews. Always look forward to his podcast every week. Well, Colleen, thank you so much. That means so much to me. In garden news, the basil has pretty much gotten away from me, so it's gone to, to seed, and the leaves are fewer and far between, but the raspberries are coming in uh, delicious and full, and I've also kind of uh, given up on eating the tomatoes. They're not really good for sauce, so we've just been slicing them and drying them in an Excalibur dehydrator and putting them into freezer bags, so we should have um, intense tomato flavor all winter. Also, my wife has uh, started harvesting these really interesting-looking, weird-looking melons uh, from from India, from all over the world. Some of them are delicious, and some of them will be delicious in a few years when we fix our soil. In running news, I'm having a really good time running slowly. It got cool for a couple of days. It was delightful to run in the morning, and it feels like... Um, sort of focused pleasure now rather than hard training and i'm sure at some point the hard training will will pop back up but for now um, i'm just enjoying bipedal locomotion in the in the beautiful midsummer that's it for this week as always be well my friends